morning. How are you guys? It's so good to see you. Hey, before we get going, I just want to give you an invitation. A uh, week from this coming Wednesday, which uh, September 7th, we're going to be starting up our midweek services. So I'm going to be starting a new teaching series on going through the six covenants that we have in the Bible. So we'd love for you to be there Wednesday night, 6.45 p.m. in our South Auditorium, and our middle school kids are going to be in small groups and all that stuff, so we'd love to see you there. Hey, this morning is a standalone weekend, which is it's, to say it's not in a series. We're going to be starting a series in just a couple weeks, but I want to talk to you this morning about maybe my favorite Bible verse in the whole Bible. It's a really obscure one. It's, it's, it's in the book of Revelation, and, and it says something, and essentially Jesus has appeared to John, that's what the book of Revelation is, and he's answering this question, do you know what your life is going to be, if, if, if you've tethered your life to Jesus, do you know what your life is going to involve? Jesus has returned, the final judgment, new creation is here, he's like, do you want to know what it's going to be? And John's like, oh yeah, I would love to know. And here's the language that John uses, Revelation 21 verse 1. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the, the first heaven and the first earth, it had passed away, and here it is. It's all wrapped up into this. And the sea was no more. What? <laughs> what is that about? You might be like, there's no dolphins? I love dolphins. I want there to be dolphins. How come God doesn't like dolphins? There's no more sea. No. That's not it. See, we miss everything that's being talked about here because we're modern. We're modern people. The, the way ancient people thought about the sea, it's totally lost on us because, again, we're modern people. Here's the idea. Let me give you a phrase that when you come across this as you're reading your Bible and it talks about the seas, there's something that biblical theologians call it the chaos waters, okay? the chaos waters, and see there's a whole matrix of ideas around the sea or the chaos waters that it's just lost on us. Let me see if I can give you an example of maybe sort of a matrix of ideas that, that we have for something in our day. If I say to you Las Vegas, what pops in your mind? Don't say, don't say. <laughs> um, when I say Las Vegas, I'm guessing your, your mind doesn't immediately go to geographical coordinates on a map of Nevada right? Think, there's a whole matrix of ideas. You're thinking casinos, the strip, lights, gambling, Elvis, right? drive through wedding chapels, bad decisions, right? What happens in Vegas? Yeah, unfortunately not. But do, do you see what I mean? When I say a thing, a location, you have a whole matrix of ideas that fills your head, right? Immediately. To an ancient person, when they said the seas, that's like Vegas on steroids, okay? Now you might think, well, how, how in the world is that? Why would the ancient people, when they think of the seas, go to sort of chaotic waters? Well, think about it this way. The seas are uninhabitable. You can't live there. A lot of people die there. They're unpredictable. You ever get on a boat and go out to the seas? And I'm not talking a Disney princess cruise. I'm talking a boat that you've built, and you go out onto the seas, they're unpredictable, they're dangerous, they're, they're dark. There's no National Geographic videos of showing what's going on underneath. You know, why is, why is it scary for us to go out into the woods at night and it's dark? Because you don't know what's there, right? That's the seas 
to the ancient people. The seas are unpredictable. They're dark. They're dangerous. And there are creatures who live out there. There would have been reports of seeing these massive creatures, you know, what we know today, whale and sharks. They're deadly, right? And so the ancient people gave them names. Leviathan, Bohemoth, Rahab, not the woman, but the sea creature. And they're referring to these creatures. And so these creatures almost become like, um, sort of like Elvis is a mascot for Vegas. <laughs> Leviathan becomes like a mascot, a symbol, an icon for the seas. So sometimes if you just refer to them, you're referring to this. Does that make sense? It's this whole matrix of ideas that for the ancient person informs the text that we just simply tend to read over and we miss it. Maybe the easiest way to think about it is if, if Eden, which arose out of the chaos waters, out of the sea, is habitable, the seas are anti-Eden, okay? There's almost a, a moral connotation, almost an evil connotation to the seas in their mind. It's chaos. The seas are the chaos monster. It's interesting, if you read many of the ancient Near East creation accounts, if you go to the Canaanite story, the Enuma Elish, it has Baal creating, bringing, bringing order out of chaos, and you know how it pictures it? Baal defeats the sea monster. Well, of course, that would make sense. He is taking care of chaos, and he's bringing about habit to the Canaanites, to their minds. God bringing order out of chaos. Now listen to how the ancient Israelites describe Yahweh God, who is the true creator. They put it this way. You've read this probably many times. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. It was void. Here's the ominous part. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And where's God's Spirit? <laughs> the Spirit of God, it's hovering over the waters. Do you see the picture there? The, it's not even a battle. Yahweh God doesn't have to defeat it. He's got it under control. Now, now store that away. This is important for where we're going. God's Spirit, Yahweh, is above the waters, okay? Keeping them in check, keeping order. When you're over something, you have dominion. That's the picture of it. God has control and dominion over the chaos waters. In this picture, it, it just carries all throughout the rest of the story. Remember, Israel is in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And Pharaoh, and if you think about it, Pharaoh in the Egyptian mind, he's, he's the actual incarnation of the god Horus to the Egyptians, who's the son of Osiris. This is a divine figure in their minds. And the ten plagues, and finally Pharaoh relents and says, all right, go worship your God out in the desert. And they're let go. And Yahweh says something interesting to Moses. He goes, don't go the quickest route. <laughs> I want you to go this route where you're going to have a dead end at the sea, Red Sea. And that's odd. Why would you want us? And he said, oh, and camp there, right in front of the sea. So they, which is odd. Why would you camp right in front of the sea, especially? Because God knows Pharaoh is coming and he wants to do theological messaging. Here's the question. Does Pharaoh, the incarnation of Horus, does Pharaoh have control over the chaos waters, or does Yahweh have control over the chaos waters? 
And of course, we know the story. They get there and Yahweh says, Moses, put your staff over, over the sea. And what happens? It parts. Dry ground. The Israelites walk through. They get through and then Pharaoh and his army go in. And of course, he says, put your staff back over the water. And they're thrown into the sea, the chaos waters. And Moses' sister, Miriam, sings this song. It's the first song recorded in the Bible, Exodus 15, 21. She sings, Sing to the Lord, to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he has what? He's thrown into the sea. Why is that significant? That's where evil belongs. Evil belongs there. He's putting it back where it belongs. Now, store that away again, that, that concept, that idea of, of throwing evil into the sea. You might think of the uh, prophetic book of Daniel. Many people love the book of Daniel. In chapter 7 of it, this is Daniel, who he and the rest of the Israelites are in exile in Babylon. And Daniel has this vision. And, and the vision is about what powers are going to arise in the future, and specifically about some of the evil forces that are going to be a part of those powers. And look how he describes it. Daniel chapter 7, verses one through three, he writes this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared this. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That's ominous. The chaos waters are stirring. Evil's brewing. And four great beasts came out of where? Of course, the sea. Where else would evil come from? If you go to the book of Revelation, Revelation 13, verse 1, John uses the exact same imagery. He says there was a great beast. This is apocalyptic literature. There was a great beast, and guess where he arose out of? <laughs> Revelation. Of course, the sea. Where else would evil arise from? <clears throat> it's interesting. In the ancient world, when the ancients would build temples, they would oftentimes um, use artistic and architectural work to, to do theological messaging, to convey certain things about their gods. For instance, the temple of Marduk in Babylon had an artificial sea. A ta'amtu ta is what it was called. It's, it's like a model of the sea in its temple precinct. And it didn't function anyway, but it was theological messaging. There are a lot of Babylonian temples that had an apsu, which just means a sea, the sea, out there. And here's, here's the message it was communicating. Our God, it might be Marduk, it might be Baal, he, can, he keeps the chaos waters under control. The order that you're experiencing, it's because of Marduk, it's because of Baal. It's a picture of that. And ancient Israel shared that same notion and image, and they said, well, it's not Marduk, though. <laughs> it's not Baal. Yahweh God keeps it under control. You might have seen images of Solomon's temple. The image of the temple was given to David first, but it was Solomon who actually built it. You can see there's many different elements around there. One of the few things that would be seen by passers-by, given the wall that was around it, was if we zoom in on the bottom right-hand corner of that image, is what's called the Bronze Sea or the Molten Sea. This thing was huge. 
It's 45 feet in circumference. It sits at about seven and a half feet off the ground. That's how tall it is. When it was empty, this thing weighed somewhere between 25 and 30 tons. It's estimated that it held somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 gallons of water. As you can see, it's held by, there are four sets of three cast iron uh, bulls, bronze rather, bulls, all with their hindquarters in that was holding this thing up. And scholars always ask this question, how did this thing function? Like, what were they doing with this thing? It's seven and a half feet off the ground. It's not like the priests are using it like the other smaller ones to wash their hands after doing sacrifices. What, what was its function? And many scholars say, we don't think it had a function, but it had a theological message. Here's the theological message. Where God is, remember the temple was his house? Where God is, the chaos waters are flat. They're under control. It's a picture to every person who walks by, whether it be Israelite or foreigner, Yahweh God controls the chaos waters. In his presence, they're still. They are under control. So it answers, answers the question, who controls the chaos waters? And to the Israelite, it's the most high God. He does. Only he does. Before we jump to the New Testament, where I want us to kind of pull this together, let me, let me just bring up one other one. The psalmist in Psalm 104, verses 5 through 7, is talking about the creation, talking about God creating. And he, he writes this, He, God, the Most High, set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You, God, covered it with the deep, that's the oceans, as with the garment. The water stood above the mountains, but at your, and here's the key word, at your rebuke, which is an interesting word. That word carries a moral connotation to it. At your rebuke, they fled. God rebuked the chaos waters so that they, they would be under control. Are you starting to see the matrix of ideas with the sea? Are you with me? The ancient people thought of this whole concept, it's, and it's much even bigger or more complex than that, but, but we at least have our minds, I think, around how they thought of and what they thought of when they thought of the sea. Now, here's my question. Have you ever wondered why so many of Jesus' miracles are centered around the Sea of Galilee? It's not accidental. Jesus didn't do anything on accident. Jesus is doing theological messaging. Let me just give you a couple examples. Matthew chapter 14, he has just fed the 5,000. He's there on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And we read this, Matthew 14, 22. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, the winds was against them. These are the chaos waters experienced. And it was the fourth watch of the night, and Jesus came to them how? He's walking on the seas. Now think about what this communicated to an ancient person. When was the last time we saw someone above the sea? Genesis 1. Where was the Spirit of God at creation? Above, hovering over the seas. What do we see here? Where's Jesus at? 
He's above the seas. This is a clear picture. This is a clear theological messaging. More than that, he's walking on them. I don't, the word walk could be like this, like, you know, that sort of thing. Um, think of a different English word that's better. Uh, do you know the yellow flag that has a, a snake curled up? What does it say along the bottom? Don't, don't tread on me. Think of treading in that sense. Treading is to exploit someone to have control, you know, domination over them. Jesus is treading on the water. He's hovering over the water. What is the theological message? Who has the ability to keep the chaos waters under control? The Most High God. Jesus is the master of the chaos waters. Let me show you one other place, a little earlier, Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27, we read this. When he got into the boat, this is a different event, Jesus gets into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm at the sea, of course, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Then he arose, and what's the word? Rebuked. Where did we hear that word before? <laughs> oh yeah, Psalm 104. The Most High God rebuked. Remember, it has a moral connotation to it. It's, it's tying Jesus to the Most High God. He rebuked the winds and the waves, and there was great calm. Okay, theological messaging, he's provoking an appropriate question. Here's the question. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? <laughs> that the winds and the sea obeys him. Because remember the great theological question, who's in charge of the chaos waters? Which God? And Jesus is giving a clear answer for that. Continuing on, the exact same story, just the next verse. And when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men, remember these two crazy guys? They come out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass by. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Interesting. They seem to be aware of some sort of a time clock. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Okay, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down into the steep bank into what? Ah, oh, interesting. The sea drowning in the waters. No small amount of ink has been spilled by commentators writing about this passage because it's odd. Jesus never bargains with evil spirits. He never goes, okay, I'll, I'll go 80% your way, you come 20% my way, <laughs> Right? And it's almost like he's doing that here. They say, oh, you know, you know don't do, you know, send us least into the pigs. Why, why would he, is he appeasing them? Is he bargaining with them? Why would he do that? Well, I would suggest he's doing something much more. The pigs are sent, the demons, into the sea, right? Do you remember Miriam's song back in Genesis 15? What does she say? Yahweh God has thrown the horse and the rider where? Into the sea, because that's where evil belongs. See, Jesus could have just cast out the demons. Problem is, there were other people who have done exorcisms in the past. There are psalms, exorcist psalms in the Old Testament. Other people have done Jesus wants to know he's doing more than that. 
He's not just exercising demons. He's, a, he's giving a theological message. I have the control on where they're ultimately going at the end. I can send evil to where it belongs. That's who I am. I am master over the chaos waters. And one day Jesus will send, is this point, evil to where it belongs. This brings us back to the verse we started with, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But maybe, maybe when you read it now, it has whole new meaning. Because the matrix of ideas of the seas like, are in our heads. Listen to the words, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, it had passed away. And look at the statement. And there was no, the sea was no more. Do you get that? Do you see what he is saying here? The chaos waters, they're not even just under control. Remember Genesis 1, the Spirit of God's over the chaos waters? They don't exist. They're gone. One language, some language that the Bible uses for this is, it's the death of death. <laughs> the chaos waters have been utterly wiped out and destroyed because Jesus, in the words of Revelation, has made all things new. And see, if, if you have tethered yourself to Jesus, that is your hope. That is your hope. If you've tethered your life to him, your hope is in this new creation when God will wipe every tear from our eyes because there will be no more death, mourning, sorrow, and pain because the old order of things, it's gone and there will be no more sea is the shorthand way of saying it. Immanuel Kant, he was a famous philosopher from the Enlightenment, he said that there are three main questions that concern humanity. Number one, what can I know? Number two, what must I do? And number three, <clears throat> what can I hope for? And see, we live in a postmodern culture, which as they go to answer these questions, what can I know? Well, everyone has their own truth, so I can't tell you what you can know. <clears throat> what, what must I do? Once again, everyone has their own truth, so do whatever you will, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, to the best of our definition of hurt, the best of our definition of anybody. And because there's no answer to what I can know and what I must do. There's no epistemological answer to the first one. There's no ethical question, answer to the second one. Therefore, it's a hopeless, what can I hope for? Nothing. It is absolutely without hope. It is only the Bible, I would suggest to you, that gives us the answer. What can you know? You can know the master of the chaos waters, personally. That's what you can know. And because you can know him, if you respond to his call, which is both an invitation and a command, follow me, you know what to do. So you have the epistemological question answered. You have the ethical question answered. And therefore, you have the answer to the most important question. What can I hope for? Well, if your life is tethered to the person of Jesus, you can hope for no more sea, no more chaos waters in your life. I want <clears throat> to introduce you to um, two friends of mine, Cody and Morgan Dinkle. Uh, I first met Morgan, maybe about seven years ago, this is a picture of them on the screen here, she got baptized at our outdoor baptism up at Horsetooth Reservoir. And it wasn't long after that that she, she brought this boy to me and introduced me. She said, I want you to meet this boy. I, I want to marry this boy. And I said, well, I, need to, I need to meet this boy. And so I met and sat down, and Cody and Morgan and I sat down at one of our tables out by our mall. And, and, um, I'm, and I'm talking to Cody. I said, tell me a little bit about who you are. What's your story? 
And so he told me about his life, and a big, a big part of his life was, he said, five years ago I was a senior in high school, and I, I wrestled and played football, and I was on my way to play at uh, uh, Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. He's going to be a Sun Devil. I love the Sun Devils growing up. And he was going to play football there, but he said, but, but, but five years ago when I was a senior, I got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And, and the doctor said, Cody, your chance of living five years is about like this. And I said, well, that was five years ago. <laughs> Cody was one of the most kind, conscientious people I've ever known, but he was also a force to be reckoned with. He was a warrior, and he battled that. And it was five years later, and he said, I want to marry this girl. And I said, that's beautiful. So I put on my black suit and my white shirt and my tie, and I, and I got to perform this ceremony for Cody and, <clears throat> and Morgan, and it was absolutely beautiful. And, and I've journeyed with them over the years. <clears throat> that was six years ago, and I remember in 2020, I hadn't seen Cody for a while, and he and I were meeting for coffee again, and, and Cody was a big guy, and he was coming toward me, and he didn't look quite so big, and, and he was using a walker this time, and he, most of his hair was gone, and he looked so different in so many ways, but until he got close, and I saw his smile, it was the same, that never changed, and it was a dead giveaway that he was still trusting Jesus with his days. And we sat down and we talked, and, and I said, this, this seems like chaos, and he says, it is, it's hard. And he didn't use this language, but he went on to tell me that he was trusting the master of the chaos waters, that he had so tethered his life to Jesus, his hope was so tied to him, it didn't matter what ultimately happened. He trusted him, and then about a week and a half ago, uh, I got a text Thursday morning, and it was from Morgan, and she said, Cody passed away last night. Oh, my heart just sank. I was so sad. And I had to put on that black suit again. And my white shirt. And the tie. And five days ago, we had a memorial service for Cody. And everyone in the room hated it. We hated being there. We didn't like it. But there was one sliver that changed everything. And that's that we knew Cody's hope was so tethered to the person of Jesus who's the master over the chaos waters, that here's the thing, Cody wouldn't have won had he made it five more years, or 10 more years, or 100 more years. He won because he got this. He got eternity. Because his life was tethered to the master of the chaos waters. And I asked Morgan, I said, I said what song do you think you want to have played at his, at his memorial service? And she thought, she said, oceans. Cody loved that song, Oceans. Here are some of the words of it. Lord, you call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, my faith will stand. And I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. Why? Because I'm yours and you are mine. Cody's faith was tethered to this reality of Revelation 21.1. I saw new heavens and a new earth, for the old heavens and the old earth had passed away. <laughs> and the sea, it was no more. 
Don't worry if you never had a chance to meet Cody. I'll introduce him to you someday. But if you don't know Cody's God, I'm giving you an invitation today to know the God who is the master of the chaos waters, who will one day rid this world of the chaos. During this next song, I'm going to invite you, if you haven't done that, you can know him. You can tether your life to him simply by the recognition of saying, yeah, there are chaos waters and I can't control them. In fact, some of the chaos waters are what I've created, my own sin. But I want to tether my life to the master of the chaos waters so that one day there'll be no more sea and I'll be with him. Would you stand with me? Let's sing these words. Baby 
allow me to read this passage over you one more time. Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Thank you, Pastor Brent, for allowing us to see Scripture with fresh eyes. I will never return to that Scripture the same way, nor will I hear the, the story of Jesus walking on water the same. Better yet, I will remember that he didn't walk on water, he treaded on water. Pastor Brent also gave us another gift in this moment. He gave us a somber moment. Often we're tempted to quickly escape or move past moments like this that are moments of deep reflection where maybe sorrow is kind of surfacing to our mind right now. Because in a room this size, we know that many of us, maybe all of us, have experienced some sort or form of chaos in our own life, whether in the form of disappointment, pain, sickness, or death. Yet, the moment that we try to escape is often the moment that God desires to meet us right here, right now. And we can't invite the Holy Spirit into a space we haven't named. So let's take a moment in prayer. And before I begin to pray, I want you to think right now, make this a moment between you and God. Name that space right now that's inside of you, that's robbing peace from your mind or causing pain in your heart. What is that? I want you to take a moment to consider that. With that element acknowledged, allow me to pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit into that space. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son, Jesus, who entered our space in order to show us you. And he came with your authority that he treaded on water and showed us that he had dominion and power over chaos, over sin, and over death. So we desire in this moment, like Cody, to tether our hope in you. Knowing that chaos is a very much a reality in the human experience, but we have something special. We have hope a supernatural, spiritual, divine hope that comes through the person of Jesus. So we place our trust right now in Jesus. Enter this space that I have named, the space of hurt, pain, sickness, death, the space that steals peace from my mind. Enter this space. I welcome you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.